The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. A heads up for mom and apple pie. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, August 15th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. The man who currently occupies the Oval Office is on vacation this week, yet somehow managed to take on the American bald eagle, the Statue of Liberty, and the First Amendment. Should mom and apple pie take cover? Shouldn't they at least be warned? And that was just on Monday. We'll get to all of it, but let's begin where the week began and the thing everyone seemed to be talking about. A clear reflection of the times in which we live, countless Americans engaged in conspiracy theories this week about the death of accused child sex abuser and trafficker Jeffrey Epstein. Those conspiracy theories continue today. Epstein allegedly committed suicide in his Manhattan jail cell, inviting suspicion and speculation from both the right and the left since Epstein had been friends with both Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. If this nation had a real president, he or she would have reminded us that this is no time for speculation and no time for finger-pointing. A true leader would urge calm and insist that the criminal justice system leave no stone unturned in finding the facts and that the investigation be allowed to proceed unimpeded. A true president would insist that we withhold our judgment until the investigation was complete the way the Founding Fathers intended. They would remind us that a court of law is bound by the rules of evidence and fairness, while the court of public opinion is not. That's how it was done before Donald Trump. Terrence K. Williams is an African-American comedian, actor, and political conservative. Perhaps you remember Terrence K. Williams from the movies Pizza Joint and Tactical Girl, or perhaps not. Mr. Williams had tweeted his own suspicions about Epstein's death and implied that Bill Clinton was somehow responsible. And that was exactly what Donald Trump wanted to say. So the President of the United States retweeted this preposterously unfounded accusation that a former president had a guy killed. Terrence K. Williams wondered how a prisoner on suicide watch could commit suicide. And that's what Trump wanted to know, too. Actually, countless Americans were asking the same thing when, in fact, it wasn't even the right question because Epstein was not on suicide watch when his death occurred. Still, this was no time for the facts to get in the way of what Trump had to say to his 63 million Twitter followers. Ignoring his own Justice Department's announcement that Epstein had died by apparent suicide, Trump was implying the Clintons were behind Epstein's death, knowing his voter base would eat that up with a spoon. Nevertheless, Trump, who controls the Justice Department that had kept Epstein behind bars, was blaming the Clintons, who have no positions in government and no aspirations to ever hold public office again. What is apparent is that Friday, court documents were made public that laid out the never-before-exposed details of Epstein's decades of abuse. Epstein saw for the first time the seriousness of the charges he faced and how he would have to face the victims in court and how, for whatever reason, he would have to refuse to name others who had partied with him. So by Friday night, it was clear to Jeffrey Epstein that he would never again see freedom or ever feed his perverted addiction again. The guards, such as they were, were apparently asleep. There was no cellmate to call for help. Three weeks had passed since Epstein was on suicide watch. But by Friday night, he had his bedsheets back. The Bureau of Prisons is part of the Justice Department now led by Trump Attorney General William Barr. For what it's worth, 
Barr has vowed to continue to pursue Epstein's co-conspirators. Stay tuned. Trump is no stranger to conspiracy theories. Before his campaign, he promoted the myth that President Obama was born in Kenya. On the campaign trail, he accused Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz's dad of being part of the plot to kill President Kennedy. Before and as president, Trump falsely claimed that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower. He toyed with the theory that the late conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia had been murdered. The Washington Post counted 23 conspiracy theories bandied about by Trump. And now, as president, he's proposed that one of his predecessors on the Democratic side had a guy killed. Unlike what a normal, sane president would do, as millions of Americans went wild on social media with the hashtags Clinton body count and Trump body count. But as with conspiracy theories, Trump is also no stranger to lies or, as the Washington Post still carefully calls them, false and misleading statements. His endurance is remarkable as the sheer numbers. In its monthly count just completed last week, the Washington Post counted more than 12,000 lies from this president in the 928 days he had been president. What's worth noting in this monthly report is that the pace of lies has picked up again. His presidential average is 13 a day. His average over the past two months, 20 a day. A fifth of his lies are about immigration, most of those about how he's building a wall when in fact he isn't, at least not the big beautiful concrete wall he's been pitching. Fences and barriers, some, yes, wall, no. He's lied nearly 200 times about the U.S. economy being the best it's ever been in history. He lies almost as often about the size of his tax cut. More significant than the president's lies, however, is the number of people who don't believe him. A Washington Post fact-checker poll shows that more than 7 in 10 Americans don't believe his most repeated lies, which includes a sizable number of Trump's voters. Of course, none of this dissuaded Trump from retweeting a bizarre and unsubstantiated conspiracy theory instead of urging support for a search for the truth. FBI agents were reportedly horrified that Trump had just made their job harder by firing up more angry white men with guns. A spokesperson for the Clintons, via Twitter, issued an obligatory denial and wondered if it was time to invoke the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which provides for the removal of an unfit president. What we do have is an impeachment of this president. It began with a whimper, not a bang, apparently by design, flying under the radar to avoid political backlash. There was no great proclamation, no dramatic televised hearing. Most people still don't realize it's underway already. Most of the major news organizations have been slow to catch up. The committee chairman who would begin impeachment hearings is Jerry Nadler of the House Judiciary Committee. And it was a week ago tonight that Nadler admitted to multiple news outlets, quote, this is formal impeachment proceedings. He was referring to two lawsuits filed by his committee to get testimony from Don McGahn and another to get hold of secret grand jury testimony gathered in the Mueller probe. In both lawsuits, the word impeachment is used to get faster court rulings. The word was used 67 times in the grand jury lawsuit. Quoting the lawsuit to get former White House counsel Don McGahn to testify, Judiciary Committee is now determining whether to recommend articles of impeachment against the president based on the obstructive conduct described by the special counsel. Nadler says he hopes the full House will vote on articles of impeachment by the end of this year. We're gathering the evidence, says Nadler. 
They hope to use that evidence to back charges of high crimes and misdemeanors worthy of impeachment. In every meaningful way, our investigation is an impeachment inquiry, says Florida Judiciary Member Ted Deutsch. A majority of House members already favor it. We looked up after Mueller's testimony and realized we're in an impeachment inquiry, says Judiciary Member Jamie Raskin. But until Congress gets back to work in the second week of September, any action on impeachment will come fairly quietly from the courts, not from dramatic TV testimony. That unsealed grand jury testimony could unleash a goldmine of information. Getting a court order forcing McGahn to testify would be used to force other key witnesses to face a congressional grilling. The hearings could begin shortly after the lawmakers return to Washington if the courts rule as quickly as we expect. Until then, the impeachment that is already in progress quietly flies under the radar. Congressional Democrats are already investigating whether Trump obstructed justice in the Mueller probe and his part in the illegal campaign contribution known as the Stormy Daniels hush money payments. They've sued to get his tax returns as they investigate possible money laundering ties to Russia. At least 20 investigations, and Trump has resisted all of them. Lawmakers have also sued to get the entire unredacted Mueller report. The House is likely to succeed in most, if not all, of these lawsuits, especially the ones that mention impeachment so many times. If and when that happens, perhaps by the middle of next month, the televised impeachment hearings would begin, and it would no longer be flying under the radar. Donald Trump is afraid of impeachment, not because he thinks it will remove him from office, but because it will paralyze his presidency in a defensive posture and permanently damage the legacy he had envisioned for himself. As it stands, his pre-impeachment days are numbered. In the meantime, he's stepping up the cruelty toward migrants and toward nature itself, starting off his vacation week with administration moves to gut the Endangered Species Act to virtually eliminate legal immigration to make life harder for the legal migrants already living here, and to stifle free speech. At about the same time, Vladimir Putin was warning Google not to interfere in Russia's elections by allowing video on YouTube of this week's massive anti-Putin protest in Moscow. The Trump administration was working to give whichever president's in power here the ability to regulate speech on the Internet. The draft of a Trump executive order has found the light of day, and it puts the FCC and the Federal Trade Commission in charge of policing free speech online, forcing platforms like Instagram, Google, Facebook, and Twitter to enforce the government's policies. It means that whichever party is in power, Trump and future presidents could dictate what and what cannot be said online. An administration could even shut down a private website if they don't like what it has to say. Trump believes Twitter and Google in particular have been discriminating against conservatives. He wants to change that. Sadly, government censorship of the Internet is an idea backed by some Democrats as well, eager to stop the trolling and disinformation. Civil rights groups say the proposed executive order is an unconstitutional violation of the First Amendment. They warn that if it's enacted, it would be the death of free speech on the Internet. Vladimir Putin would be pleased. Putin is no doubt very pleased about the efforts of the man who's become known as Moscow Mitch. When the Trump administration set out to lift sanctions from a Russian oligarch 
who's tied to both Putin and Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort, the Democrats said no. Many Republicans also said no. But Mitch McConnell, as Senate Majority Leader, blocked that bipartisan effort to keep the sanctions. Soon afterward, that oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, Russia's aluminum king, was pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into McConnell's home state of Kentucky to build an aluminum factory there. A representative of the company had met with one of McConnell's political operatives the night before McConnell blocked that vote. But that was just the beginning. Deripaska and his people have since been in touch with governors and officials in eight different states for more aluminum plants. It would appear that it's Russia's goal to build an industry in the U.S. that, because it's here, would not be subject to government sanctions against Russia. According to a Pentagon report, it is part of Russia's strategy to destroy the U.S. by dividing its people and making it financially dependent on Russia. Democrats in Congress are pushing for an investigation of the Kentucky deal and where all this is leading. In the meantime, with a much-needed new industry in his impoverished state of Kentucky, thanks to Russia, Moscow Mitch continues to block bills that would protect U.S. elections from Russian interference. Not only does McConnell despise his nickname, he may see it as the beginning of the end of his powerful political career. As for the Jeffrey Epstein case, it goes forward even after his death and perhaps with more momentum. The justice system can now get at Epstein's records and other evidence and witnesses whose non-disclosure deals no longer hold up because he's dead. The system can freeze and confiscate his $600 million in assets to compensate Epstein's victims and even pay for the investigation itself. And the criminal investigation of Epstein is not over. Epstein was charged with a conspiracy of sex-trafficking teenage girls, and legally there cannot be a conspiracy without at least one other person. There may actually be several or many who were somehow complicit in Epstein's twisted enterprise in varying degrees, including some big names. And although Epstein's not around to name those names, other people in a position to know are still around. A bunch of people, as it turns out. While the investigations continue into how Epstein was allowed to hang himself in his cell, why he was removed from suicide watch, and why he didn't have a cellmate as regulations require, so continue also the investigations into the twisted little world he had created for himself and other high-powered men. Yesterday, one of Epstein's alleged victims filed suit against the Epstein estate, his longtime associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, and three female members of Epstein's household staff at his Manhattan mansion in New York. Other victims are also taking legal action. The numbers could go very high, based on what we've learned already. And the FBI is also very interested in Ghislaine Maxwell, who fled apparently to London, where she has no listed address. She may or may not still be in London. Maxwell was considered to be Epstein's chief co-conspirator, even taking part in some of the sexual assaults of underage girls but mostly as a procurer, allegedly. Other girls were employed to recruit even more girls to try to keep up with Epstein's demands. That means more co-conspirators and more witnesses. The FBI and federal prosecutors who pursued Epstein while he was alive have not let up and have instead focused on those in this very real conspiracy to abuse teenaged girls. 
with his death, more victims are likely to come forward, no longer in fear, no longer bound by confidentiality agreements. The Epstein case is far from over, even with his death. Unfortunate timing are the words used by Trump's acting Homeland Security Director to describe the massive immigration sweep in Mississippi that arrested 680 people. The raids came on the same day Trump made an unwelcome visit to El Paso, where 22 people had been shot to death by a man out to kill Mexicans. None of the food processing plant executives in Mississippi who hired these people illegally have been charged. That's true to form. In the Trump administration, 11 small businesses have been charged with hiring undocumented workers, but no large companies have been charged. Zero. Only employees were arrested in the Mississippi raids, leaving their crying children behind. Schools had not been notified of the raid and had to figure out what to do with the kids when the final bell rang that day. Some kids went home to find their parents were already gone. No one had been notified. There was no planning in that regard. It was a new way to separate families. If the point was cruelty, mission accomplished. Congress is investigating the Mississippi raid as part of a larger investigation into Trump's immigration policies. ICE officials were on the defense with images of crying abandoned children on TV, their parents snatched from them. It should be noted that not even the White House got advance notice of the raids because the officials don't trust Trump not to spill the beans again to again destroy the intended element of surprise. 600 ICE agents were quietly flown to Mississippi to swoop down on these half-dozen food plants. Of the 680 people arrested, nearly half, including at least one U.S. citizen, were released, but nearly all of them now without a steady income. The fear that is also the point of these raids continues to permeate the Hispanic community, and the Mississippi raid was the biggest one ever conducted in American history. Keep up the cruelty is the current White House policy. The Trump White House has ordered ICE to carry out dozens more workplace raids before this year is out. Trump told reporters raids like the one in Mississippi are a very good deterrent. The president told reporters that people here illegally will be removed. Whether the companies that hire them will be punished remains to be seen. We had best not hold our breath. An undocumented Jorge Castro of Ecuador worked for the Trump Organization for nine years. He tells the Washington Post Trump doesn't want undocumented people in the country, but that, quote, at his properties, he still has them. If you're a good worker, says Jorge, papers don't matter. Until about three months ago, Jorge was part of an elite crew of construction workers who are two things. They are undocumented employees of Donald Trump, and they are extremely good at working with stone, making rocks into practical works of art. It's hard, heavy work using large stones to build fountains and waterfalls and even sidewalks at Trump properties around the country. Jorge says he's done work at seven of Trump's golf courses and resorts. One of Jorge's co-workers told the Washington Post his Trump Organization supervisor had told him to go to a New York street corner to buy a fake ID. The company pledged last year to purge its payroll of undocumented workers, and some have gone, but the rock-moving crew that's so good they've become known as the Flintstones continue to work for the president's company. Just over a month ago, Trump told reporters he didn't know if his golf resorts still employed dozens of undocumented workers. 
Well, that I don't know because I don't run it, replied Trump, adding probably every club in the United States has that, from what I understand, a way that people did business. When an ICE official was asked by CNN this week why there have been no raids on Trump properties, the official replied, you can't really say that for sure. But he had more cruelty up his sleeve for those who are in this country legally. A new regulation issued Monday morning could dramatically cut the number of legal immigrants to the U.S., making it much easier to reject their applications for visas and green cards. This new rule would punish legal migrants who legally use food stamps, Medicaid, or housing. Instead, the new policy grants visas and green cards to those with education, a command of English, a good credit score, health insurance, and money. If you come to this country with these things, you are welcome here. Being a young adult also helps. Being 58 years old does not. Being healthy helps. Being ill does not. Never mind what it says on the statue. Your tired and your poor are not welcome here. Give us your rich, young, and healthy. Acting Director of Citizenship and Immigration Ken Cuccinelli actually revised that famous poem on the Statue of Liberty, at least in his mind, to read, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, who stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. Cuccinelli, whose family immigrated here from Italy at a time Italians were not welcome here, said the poem inscribed on that statue, the national symbol, was meant for Europeans. His implication not brown people. So this administration has even reinterpreted and misinterpreted the Statue of Liberty. Even legal migrants who might have to use public benefits can now be turned away under the new Trump policy, whether they've taken advantage or not. That's prompting immigrants to stop applying for or accepting public help to which they are legally entitled. Immigrants are being punished. It's all about the cruelty. The Trump administration has already made deep cuts in the number of refugees we take in and has made it harder to even ask for asylum. Morality and the Statue of Liberty aside, the granting of asylum is required by U.S. and international law. This morning, Donald J. Trump became the first American president to use foreign relations to punish domestic political rivals. Trump angrily tweeted that Israel should block the scheduled visits of Congresswomen Rashida Tlaib and Elon Omar over their calls for a boycott of Israel. Israel has since bowed to Trump's will and has, in fact, barred entry to women representing American voters. Imagine waking up one morning and finding yourself in Iraq... Jimmy Aldaud spent nearly his whole life in Detroit where he got care as a diabetic with a serious mental illness that led to a string of run-ins with the law. But Jimmy's life in Detroit ended two months ago when ICE deported him to Iraq. Like most of us, Jimmy had never been to Iraq and didn't speak the language. Last week, he posted a Facebook video in which he said, I've been throwing up, sleeping in the street, and trying to find something to eat, adding, I've got nothing over here. This week, Jimmy died in Baghdad, probably from a lack of insulin. ICE says it sent him to Iraq with, quote, a full complement of insulin. Quoting the family's Democratic congressman, Jimmy should have never been sent to Iraq. Now, he says, someone has died. <laughs> 
over on Facebook, Trump campaign ads appeared promoting Latinos for Trump even after a gunman had killed nearly two dozen people to help stop what he'd heard the president and Fox News call an Hispanic invasion. Tucker Carlson went on vacation last week after the firestorm over his claim that white supremacy is a hoax and that caused big advertisers to drop his show as well. But it was Tucker Carlson who in April of last year told his viewers that the thousands of Central Americans headed for our border were not refugees, but border jumpers, and he called it an invasion. Six months later, as another band of migrants headed north to the U.S., Ann Coulter told Fox viewers, you can shoot invaders. Days later, former DJ Rush Limbaugh warned his mesmerized audience that if the Central Americans weren't stopped, the U.S. would lose its identity, a common claim of white supremacists. They would, Limbaugh claimed, eventually erase American culture as we've known it. That, he said, is why it's an invasion. Tucker Carlson often repeated the word replacement based on the white supremacist theory that brown people are flooding the U.S. to erase and replace the white culture. Republicans in Congress piled on, repeating what they had heard from both right-wing media and Trump. In the written statement left behind by the El Paso shooter, he virtually quoted these right-wing talkers, as well as quoting the president, who had also called the waves of immigrants an invasion. The New York Times found 300 instances during the Trump presidency in which Fox News had aired the word invasion in the context of immigration. Sometimes the talking heads at Fox repeated what they'd heard from the president. Sometimes he repeated what they had said. And then the El Paso shooter quoted them both in the written statement he'd prepared. Renowned columnist Eugene Robinson wrote this week that it's not just the white supremacist sentiment that makes Trump a dangerously unfit president, but, quoting Robinson, the corruption, the ignorance, the incompetence, and the stunning lack of empathy. Trump had already proven more than once he is not the consoler-in-chief we found in George W. Bush and Barack Obama. In his White House remarks last Monday about the Dayton and El Paso gun slaughters, Trump read the teleprompter uncomfortably with no detectable emotion. But this past week made it clear he has no compassion, period, much less for the survivors of a gun massacre. As a narcissist, it's always about him. People who've been to the aftermaths of mass shootings often carry nightmares. Trump was fuming about the tone of the cable news coverage of his trips to Dayton and El Paso. As soon as he'd returned to the White House, Trump was tweeting about the love, respect, and enthusiasm he received on that trip, adding that the fake news had worked overtime, trying to disparage me. The trip was never about the victims or even the medical professionals or the first responders. It's about how he would look. To deal with domestic terrorists and white supremacists, we likely cannot count on a president who's called them fine people. And since his attorney general acts as the president's personal attorney, instead of representing the people of the United States, we likely cannot count on him either. So who do we turn to? Private attorneys general. A private attorney general is a real thing. A private attorney general is any lawyer whose lawsuit benefits not only his client, but society as a whole. 
Taylor Dumpson is the first black woman to serve as student government president at D.C.'s American University. When she was elected, bananas appeared on campus, hung by tiny nooses and emblazoned with racist messages. They appeared at the student government offices. They appeared outside Taylor Dumpson's sorority. The masked man who had placed these racist symbols also published Dumpson's name and photo along with links to her Facebook and Twitter accounts and called on other racists to troll storm her. The private attorney who represented Dumpson in going after this guy has won the case that racist online trolling can interfere with a person's equal access to public accommodations and that's illegal. The Oregon man who had targeted Ms. Dumpson has been ordered to give her a sincerely written apology to renounce white supremacy and to work against bigotry in 200 hours of community service. His parents say he is remorseful. He's been ordered to never again troll or publish private documents about any individual. It is the first time a court has made such a ruling, and it opens the door for more such lawsuits, more private attorneys general. If the law cannot or will not go after the spreaders of hatred and violence, the lawyers will as private attorneys general. The firehose of news this week has not washed away the momentum for gun control that was so visible the week before. Beneath the succession of outrages that followed that bloody weekend, gun control advocates have been focused on their mission, and they've been doing something. Energized by Americans fed up with gun violence and by a weakened NRA, and by a president who seems to be, at least for the moment, saying he's for background checks, gun control groups have floored the accelerator. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has heard from a few members of the Brady campaign about the background check bills already sitting on his desk, already approved by the House. Well, okay, he's heard from more than 20,000 members of the Brady campaign, which is also calling on McConnell to drag himself and the rest of the Senate back from their six-week summer vacation to do something. Moms Demand Action is running TV ads in McConnell's home state of Kentucky to pressure him and the rest of the Senate back to work for an emergency session. But wait, there's more. Thousands of volunteers for Moms Demand Action will conduct rallies in all 50 states this weekend, backed by the group Every Town for Gun Safety. They'll be out demanding their senators expand background checks and red flag laws, not radical ideas. But the idea is the vast majority of Americans support left and right, including gun owners and NRA members. Moms Demand Action is also scheduling meeting with lawmakers in every district of every state that the NRA considers its stronghold. Guns Down America will next week stage rallies at Walmarts across the country. That group's goal is to pressure Walmart into stopping its sales of guns and stopping its contributions to the political candidates who also get money from the NRA. While each day brings new outrages of various kinds, the gun control effort is laser-focused, making progress while it has the chance. Under tremendous pressure to do something about the violence, Trump declared that Republicans would lead the way in implementing very meaningful background checks for gun buyers despite consistent Republican resistance against universal background checks. Trump told reporters that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, also facing intense pressure, 
was now willing to consider two bills already passed by the House that would strengthen background checks. That, uh, not surprisingly, appears to be untrue. Trump said McConnell is now totally on board, even though McConnell had refused to allow a vote and McConnell's office says he has not changed his position at all. McConnell knows that Trump has proposed and then backpedaled on background checks before, and McConnell knows that as much influence as Trump has over his party, many of his senators are even more influenced by the NRA. And McConnell should not be surprised that after Trump announced his renewed support for background checks, the president got a phone call from the NRA's Wayne LaPierre. LaPierre repeated the NRA's opposition to increased background checks and told Trump he would alienate his voter base by supporting them. And as vital as the NRA was to Trump's 2016 campaign, he reportedly now believes that he is more influential than the gun group with both his voters and the Republicans in Congress. Trump has reportedly noted that the NRA is in a weakened state, fighting internal battles while facing multiple investigations. A fourth NRA board member resigned this week. Trump's also reportedly talked with aides about a Rose Garden ceremony for signing big gun control legislation, with little chance that Trump will get the Republican support he says he wants. Aides say the president uh, may be getting ahead of things with that Rose Garden ceremony. Democrats in the House, meanwhile, are pushing renewing the ban on assault rifles. That would not pass until 2021 at the earliest for as long as Republicans still hold the Senate. But doing something seemed better than doing nothing. Assault weaponry is a topic even Democrats had been afraid to touch for years. But that fear has passed, replaced by anger about the epidemic gun violence in this nation more than any other nation on earth. Nearly six in ten of us favor an assault rifle ban. Support for universal background checks is at 89%. The sales of bulletproof backpacks for children have spiked 300% since the mass shootings of the past month. In fact, sales of bulletproof backpacks and bulletproof inserts for backpacks have been on the rise since 2016. The most popular ones feature either Avengers, superheroes, or Disney princesses. They have Harry Potter ones, too. Some cost hundreds of dollars, and they are not foolproof, especially against a high-powered weapon. And the companies behind these products, are they exploiting fear? Are they selling a false sense of security? There are also bulletproof clipboards and bulletproof three-ring binders at places like Office Depot. Bulletproof whiteboards and chair cushions and stylish bulletproof vests for kids. Welcome to 2019 America. Not every American founding father was right about everything. Ben Franklin hated the bald eagle, calling it a bird of bad moral character because he said they were too lazy to fish for themselves, which is not true. Franklin wanted the turkey to be our national bird, a bird of real courage, he called them, albeit a little silly, he said. Against Franklin's wishes, the bald eagle became our national bird. But in the 1960s, thanks to hunters and pesticides, the symbol of our country was in danger of extinction. It was one of the first endangered species to be added to an official government list of animals on the brink, starting in 1973 with the signature of then-President Richard Nixon. 
Of all the birds, fish, animals, and plants ever added to that list, 99% of them have been saved from extinction, including horses, condors, wolves, bears, leopards, frogs, turtles, whales, manatees, whooping cranes, and flowers. The American bald eagle made a comeback and remains a proud symbol of the U.S., saved by conservation efforts and the Endangered Species Act. Enter Donald Trump, who on Monday morning gutted the Endangered Species Act. The United Nations says worldwide some one million species of plants and animals are in danger of extinction as humans continue to shrink their environment and poison their water, soil, and air. 12,000 species in the U.S. are at risk. Of the 1,600 living things on the government's endangered species list, all but 47 are still on that list, still considered endangered. Under the new Trump administration rules set to go into effect next month, the government can now decide that maybe the fossil fuels to be gathered and the money to be made are more important than the survival of some owl most people have never even seen. The trees in which those hoot owls live crash to the forest floor if we decide we need the lumber more. If we need the housing development or the 7-Eleven more than we need some frog, you get the idea. The new rules give the government discretion in deciding what the foreseeable future is for a given species, allowing them to ignore longer-term predictions that are likely more grim than the government's definition of foreseeable future. A new study shows California has reduced its carbon emissions again and it didn't hurt the economy there. The report says the Golden State is on schedule to cut emissions to the goal set in 2006 by then-Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now that the Trump administration has rid itself of most of the scientists at the USDA and other agencies and deleted much of their taxpayer-funded research, we are forced to rely on independent resources outside the government for our science. The Center for American Progress is out with a new report called How Much Nature Should America Keep? The think tank reports that the U.S. lost 24 million acres of natural land to the human footprint between 2001 and 2017. Having natural land without a human footprint is crucial to combating climate change, and the report says we should set a goal of protecting 30% of the natural land that remains, at least, and to make sure that it's fully protected by the year 2030. Much of the land we lose is lost to farming. Between their expanding cities and their expanding farms and the roads built to connect them, in the Midwest, the footprint of man now covers 59% of the land. In the South, it's 47%. Nationwide, however, 60% of our land remains undeveloped, and that puts the U.S. in the top five nations on Earth for conserving such a big part of its territory. But only 12% of the U.S. is protected land, and protections, as we were reminded this week, can be taken away. We've heard before about the loss of South American rainforests, but we've heard very little about Africa until now. A new report in the journal Nature Communication says that thanks to land development, fires, and drought, the soil in tropical northern Africa is now releasing between a billion and one and a half billion tons of carbon into the air. 
and the impact of humankind is being felt in the sea as well as on land. The human footprint on our oceans has doubled in just the past 10 years, according to a UC Santa Barbara study. And the research indicates man's impact on the ocean will double again in the next 10 years. Warmer rising seas are slowing down the ocean's currents. It's the currents that introduce and circulate oxygen and other nutrients into the water. The warmer water is more acidic, bleaching the coral that's a vital part of sea life. Pollution feeds life-killing algae. Commercial fishing depletes our supply of seafood. The shipping industry and military activities have also made life in the ocean more challenging for the creatures that live there. This week's climate news includes a warning about those beautiful Dr. Seuss-looking Joshua trees that have lived in California's Mojave Desert for two and a half million years could be virtually gone in 80 years. The soil has never recovered from a string of droughts or temperatures this warm in the higher elevations where it's supposed to be cooler. Joshua trees rarely survive a wildfire and the smog from nearby LA is choking them. By the end of this century, ecologists predict there'll be only a few trees left as Joshua Tree National Park gets hotter and drier. Quoting one, over the past two million years, we've had multiple ice ages with warming periods in between, and the Joshua trees have survived that. But right now, he says, the warming's happening so quickly, it's getting hotter than any of those previous periods. They don't have ice fishing contests in New Jersey anymore. An entire New Jersey industry of shipping ice from its frozen lakes to New York City has melted away. These winters do not exist anymore, says a concerned garden stater. New Jersey's average temperature has shot up by 2 degrees Celsius since 1895, rising twice as fast as any other part of the continental U.S. New Jersey has now crossed the red line for climate change, that dreaded 2 degrees Celsius. To what degree you feel climate change depends on where you live. Global warming is not an even heat. The Earth's temperature is up one degree Celsius on average. Jersey's is up by two. And New Jersey is not alone. It has heated up considerably in L.A., Phoenix, Cheyenne, Wyoming, southeastern Utah, the northern parts of Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, Michigan, Maine, Rhode Island, Boston, and New York City. I am proud to remind listeners each week of the existential crisis we face in terms of life on this planet as we have known it. That's been the case for a while here now, and I have no plans to let up. Next month, scores of news organizations in the U.S. and around the world have jointly agreed to focus more heavily than ever on climate change in a concerted effort to get everyone's attention. For many of us, it will be a lead story in September because it is, after all, a matter of life and death. Just days after Trump pulled the U.S. out of a nuclear weapons agreement with Russia, there was an explosion near a town along Russia's Arctic coast. It looked like a small atomic blast, and in fact, radiation levels spiked to 16 times normal in that coastal town, and people rushed to their local drugstores for iodine to minimize the thyroid damage. At least seven people were killed by the blast, including five of Russia's top nuclear scientists. The Russian government hadn't said much to its people about the explosion. See also Chernobyl. The missile's unshielded nuclear engine apparently fell into the White Sea off northwestern Russia, 
a special ship outfitted for sucking up radioactive water appeared just offshore. Russian news agencies told the locals that a train would be sent for them to evacuate the entire town for a few hours for some kind of operation. Many locals didn't trust the evacuation, one saying he'd rather wander off into the woods than get on board that train. Why did the Russians want everyone to get out of town? Why were the bodies of the dead carried away in ambulances that had their doors and windows sealed with plastic? Why are also the doctors who treated those injured in the blast now also getting medical attention? And now, just as mysteriously, the 450 townspeople of Archangels Russia have been told there's no need to evacuate after all. Is it because that in terms of their health it's already too late? Is it because the townspeople are so contaminated other people should not be exposed to them? They and we cannot count on the Russian government for timely, truthful answers. Like Chernobyl, this nuclear accident is being covered up by the Russian government as radioactive poison spreads into the sea. This was a smaller nuclear accident than Chernobyl, but it points to something much scarier. Vladimir Putin was testing a new weapon, an unimaginably dangerous weapon the U.S. had considered in the 1950s and 60s, but ultimately decided it was just too dangerous and too cruel. It's a cruise missile capable of carrying a nuclear warhead, and it would fly at altitudes too low for our existing missile defenses. It's an ultra-long-range missile since it is propelled not by rocket fuel, but by an unshielded nuclear reactor. That theoretically means that missile could spend all day maneuvering around U.S. missile defenses. It could meander as far and as long as it needs until the U.S. ran out of missiles while leaving a destructive trail of radiation, which is why NATO calls the missile Skyfall. Vladimir Putin knew how dangerous this kind of missile system is when he launched this program, and now he's been reminded of its danger with the loss of his top five nuclear scientists. But to Vladimir Putin, it's worth it if it means he can outgun the U.S. There may have to be more deadly accidents before Putin changes his mind, because thanks to a lack of diplomacy by the Trump administration, the nuclear treaties are off. Just one day before Russia's latest nuclear accident, a group of scientists introduced atomic vodka, atomic spelled with a K. This vodka is distilled from the water around Chernobyl and fermented grain grown inside Chernobyl's exclusion zone, brewed the same as non-contaminated grain. The scientists at Britain's University of Portsmouth say the vodka they have produced is no more radioactive than any other vodka. And they say 75% of the proceeds from atomic vodka will go to the communities that were devastated by the last big Russian nuclear accident. In news a little closer to home, in fact, too close to home perhaps, the Pentagon is testing a wide-area surveillance system using high-altitude balloons here inside the U.S. We learned this from documents filed with the FCC through exclusive reporting by The Guardian. The documents reveal that about two dozen solar-powered balloons were launched from rural South Dakota to cover six states in the Midwest, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Missouri, and Illinois, from altitudes as high as 65,000 feet 
rendering them unnoticeable. The papers that were filed with the FCC by the aerospace company Sierra Nevada say it needed permission to transmit data to, quote, locate and deter narcotic trafficking and homeland security threats. The Guardian reports these tests were commissioned by the U.S. Southern Command, which focuses on the Caribbean as well as Central and South America. If the tests go well, we're told, that's where the balloons will be deployed. Civil liberties groups, in the meantime, worry these are trial balloons for something a little more sinister. As the Pentagon watches Americans go to their union houses, their churches, their mosques, and their Alzheimer clinics. Maybe it's the climate change, but a growing number of Americans are now believing in science. An annual Pew Research poll shows that 86% of us have a fair amount of confidence in scientists and that 35% of us have a great deal of trust in scientists. That's up from 21% just three years ago. Six in ten of us, by the way, think scientists should play an active role in policy debates that involve science. But the poll also shows that those of us who believe in science do so in greater numbers in one party than in the other. Donald Trump has saved Christmas for himself. We're doing this for the Christmas season, Trump told reporters, adding just in case some of the tariffs would have an impact on U.S. customers. He was talking about the new 10% tariffs he'd threatened to impose two weeks from now on incoming Chinese goods like cell phones and sneakers to try to force China to make a better trade deal with the U.S. He's now removed some items, like cell phones and sneakers, from the list of things to be taxed more than they already are. He's also removed toys and Christmas lights and decorations from the tariff list because their prices would have risen too. And he's delayed the tariffs until December 15th after the holiday shopping is almost done once the stores are well stocked. Take note. This is the first and only time Trump has admitted his Chinese tariffs are, in fact, a tax on Americans, including his red-hatted supporters who would have been robbed of about $350 a year. Hoping to be reelected on an apparently decent economy, Trump backed off his threat after a series of calamities that occurred because he had made that threat. The stock market immediately tanked and China threatened to stop buying American-grown food. The trade war escalated as the Trump administration declared China a currency manipulator. Business leaders spoke out against Trump's tariffs, and even the commentators on Fox News made it clear that Trump's China tariffs are really just a huge tax increase on the American people. Trump, under pressure from American businesses, decided to do it their way and delay the tariffs until after those stores had been fully stocked for the holiday shopping season. The Grinch decided to put Christmas back with no noticeable increase in the size of his heart. Trump's tariff threat has now been weakened and delayed by the man who made that threat in the first place. Once again, the arsonist had arrived to put out the fire. But then the market took another dive yesterday as the bond market showed signs of a pending recession and as worries continued over Trump's trade wars. The Dow closed down by just over 800 points yesterday. The S&P fell by nearly 3%. The sell-off continued at the opening bell this morning, although it was beginning to recover as this program was published. The economy of which Trump has been so proud, the one that's considered so important to his re-election, was wounded 
as the bond market warned about seeing signs of a pending recession, and as the world, including Europe, worried about his trade wars. But Trump calls himself a tariff guy and seems bent on having trade wars, which he's called easy to win. Experts say no one wins in a trade war, but Trump's a tariff guy. The Federal Reserve has cut interest rates and intends to keep cutting them for as long as it has to to stave off the negative impacts of Trump's trade wars, if it can. Morgan Stanley says it would take just nine months to dip this country into another recession if Trump's 25% tariff on Chinese goods is allowed to stand for four to six months. Goldman Sachs had been holding out hope for a Trump-China trade deal in time for the 2020 election. Because of Trump's tariffs, Goldman Sachs says it has now lost that confidence. With more and another searing commentary, here's Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thanks, Buzz. On Wednesday, the Dow dropped 800 points on news that yields on 10-year Treasury bonds have exceeded the yields on two-year Treasury bonds, a leading indicator that a recession is on the horizon. This is all Wall Street jargon describing a particularly shitty day for the American economy. For nearly three years now, Donald Trump has wrapped his doughy, spam pink arms around the economy, taking credit for all the upsides, including upsides that rightfully belong to the stewardship of Barack Obama. With the possibility of a recession lurking just around the corner, three years into this presidential crisis, Trump owns the economy now. The recession, when it happens, will be the Trump recession. Going back to the Dow for a second, let's take a closer look at Trump's record here. Wednesday's freefall was the fourth largest point decline in the history of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. For the record, seven of the ten largest point declines in history have occurred on Trump's watch. Shocking, I know, for a dingus who bankrupted half a dozen or so casinos, businesses that normally need heavy machinery to haul away the profits. Indeed, 12 of the 20 worst days for the Dow Jones occurred under Trump, and all of Trump's worst days have taken place after declaring his trade war against enemies and friends alike in early 2018. It's also worth noting for the sake of contrast that exactly none of the top 20 worst days on Wall Street occurred on Obama's watch. Zero. In fact, you might recall how Donald Trump referred to the Obama economy as American carnage. According to a chart compiled by Fortune based on numbers from S&P Global, Trump's gains on the S&P as of June were around 20% since his inauguration. President Obama, during the same period of time, presided over a 61% gain in the S&P. If Obama's gains represent American carnage, what the hell should we call Trump's record? The Dow during both Obama terms grew 148%, while Trump's gains so far have been around 29%. Likewise, GDP growth during 2018 averaged around 2.9%, which is the same growth rate as 2015, you know, during the so-called American carnage. Trump also likes to brag about the very, very tremendous unemployment rate. The truth is that joblessness was cut in half under Obama, precipitously dropping from around 10% to 4.7% by the end of 2016. That's a five and a half point drop compared with a less than 1% drop under Trump so far. A recession surely won't improve Trump's record here either. As the saying goes, Trump was born on third base, yet insists he hit a triple. Put another way, Trump got lucky. All major economic indicators were looking stellar until he started screwing around with his what does this button do incompetence. 
And now, with the next recession growing larger in the windshield, can we finally debunk this notion that Trump turned around the economy and instead label his screw-ups as actual American carnage? The fact is that Trump succeeded in riding Obama's gains for a year or so, only to squander those gains with his inexplicable trade war and irresponsible tax cuts, leading to a projected budget deficit of $1.1 trillion by the end of 2020, which happens to be roughly the same budget deficit during the first year of the Great Recession. Not only is Trump tanking the economy, his deficits will make it impossible to fix it. Consequently, if a Democrat wins in 2020 and is tasked with passing a stimulus to stop the bleeding from the Trump recession, Republicans will inevitably scream poverty and austerity, totally forgetting who presided over the deficit in the first place. This is called the starve the beast strategy, making it impossible for the beast or the Democrats to spend more on things like health care, education, the climate crisis or the aforementioned stimulus. They did the exact same thing to Obama in 2009, and there's no reason we shouldn't expect a repeat performance. While I absolutely don't welcome the idea of another recession, given how the last one totally steamrolled my financial life, there is a silver lining here. I believe Trump's poll numbers, hovering at around 42%, are as soft as his stumpy fingers. Clearly, his numbers have been artificially propped up by a relatively strong economy, and without it, I suspect he'll drop into the mid-30s, perhaps lower, with no one but the hotheads remaining in his camp. I'm sure his team is prepping a laundry list of economic accomplishments for his convention speech a year from now, and it'll all sound extremely tone-deaf, even for him, while the economy is taking a giant dump. All told, I hope the recession isn't as bad as experts are predicting. But if it's going to happen, I hope it's enough to expose Trump for being the incompetent berserker president we've been observing all along. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you very much, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on the Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. For the Catholic Church, the Boy Scouts, and others, their worst nightmare is coming true. Sexual abuse cases these organizations had hoped would be muted by the statute of limitations can now go forward again as court cases in the state of New York. A new law that went into effect yesterday in the Empire State opens a look-back window for the abuse victims. As reported here last week, the average age is 51 for someone to come to grips and to come forward with the abuse they suffered as children. That's more than a quarter century after their statute of limitations runs out. Under this new look-back law, victims of child sex abuse in New York now have one year to sue or file criminal charges against their alleged abusers, and those whose statute of limitations was about to expire get a one-year extension. California had a one-year look-back window 16 years ago that launched about a 1,000 cases and forced the church and others to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in settlements. In Minnesota, which had a look-back law three years ago, several Catholic dioceses filed for bankruptcy. After the announcement of yesterday's new law in New York State, hundreds of new lawsuits were filed. An apparent cure for Ebola. Normal becomes normal and a Florida woman. In the final segment, after this. And this is the part where I try to enlist your help. You're listening at such a crucial time in our history because you know the importance of honest, independent journalism and how important it is to support that. 
So I'd be very grateful if you'd stop by my webpage, buzzburbank.com, and click on that gold donate button, which helps cover expenses for server fees, subscriptions, professional broadcast equipment, and its upkeep. You'll find other useful stuff on my page as well. Your support is what keeps this newscast going, keeping it independent and free for the listening. Now, if you're able, you can do as others have done and schedule a regular monthly donation or just kick in something when you can. On your desktop browser, that gold donate button's in the upper right at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just above the title, Buzzburbank News and Comment. Thank you to those of you who support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. Medical scientists believe they have found a cure for Ebola, which has killed 2,000 people in the Congo just in the past year. The two new treatments combined have been amazingly effective in killing the Ebola virus. It worked so well in clinical trials, they shut down the trials early and started giving it to patients in the Congo who were suffering from the latest outbreak. Said one of the medical researchers, we won't ever get rid of Ebola, but we should be able to stop these outbreaks. But said another, from now on, we will no longer say that Ebola is incurable. The National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws will be 50 years old next year. Normal, as it's known, has worked tirelessly on research and education ever since the federal government's Controlled Substances Act made marijuana a Schedule I drug. Normal counts among its goals keeping pot out of the hands of children and out of the systems of people operating vehicles, urging people not to abuse cannabis and urging them to respect the rights of non-smokers. Now, as a very real lobby in Washington, Normal tries to act as a sort of consumer protection group, arguing that cannabis be safe and legal for responsible adult users, be they medical or recreational. Normal counted on donations and got a great deal of its funding from Hugh Hefner's Playboy Foundation. It wasn't until 1996, 26 years after Normal went to work, that California became the first state to legalize medical marijuana, 1996. And 23 years later, the marijuana movement had solidly made its place in the mainstream. This week, the powerful chairman of the influential House Judiciary Committee that oversees criminal justice in the U.S. wrote an email to everyone on Normal's email list. Last month, New York Democrat and committee chairman Jerry Nadler introduced a bill to remove marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act. In his email this week, Nadler asked Normal to write their representatives and senators telling them to support his bill, the MORE Act for Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement, under Nadler's bill, pot would no longer be a Schedule One drug. Criminal records would be cleared. Sentences would be reduced. And it would block the federal government from denying benefits or citizenship status to immigrants just because the applicant had smoked some weed. In short, pot possession would be decriminalized nationwide. The bill would also slap a 5% federal tax on marijuana sales the money going to legal aid, job training, and small business loans to those whose lives were upended by a minor pot charge. That's in the House. Over in the Senate, Kamala Harris has a similar bill. Nadler and Normal wouldn't mind if supporters were to call their senators, too. 
Normal's 50-year effort is coming to fruition or has at least made it into the mainstream, not just in the media and the masses, but in the halls of government. Meanwhile, it was in the heart of the South that a black quarterback for Georgia Southern University was stopped for speeding and was charged with cocaine possession. There was, you see, a white residue on the hood of Shy Wirt's car, and deputies from the Saluda County Sheriff's Office believed it was cocaine, they said. They said their field test just outside Savannah told them it was cocaine. Lab tests have since shown that it was not cocaine. It was residue from a bird dropping, which, as the football player tried to explain to his arresting officers, he had half-heartedly tried to rub off the hood of his car. The coke possession charge has been dropped. He still faces the speeding charge. Pee into this cup, citizen. For the first time, a panel of public health experts is recommending that every adult in the U.S. be tested for drug abuse. Because of the epidemic of opioids and fentanyl addiction, injury and death, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force is recommending that doctors ask their patients if they have engaged in illicit drug use. The panel admits it's looking for evidence of cocaine or heroin abuse, but also signs of abuse of prescription drugs like Adderall. There was no mention of marijuana, but many drug tests do cover all the bases. The panel says doctors should only test their patients if they can test accurately, and in the event they find evidence of abuse, they must be able to offer treatment or referral for treatment or not conduct the test. Nearly 31 million Americans told a nationwide survey they had used illegal drugs in the last month. Addiction is the leading cause of disability in the U.S., and drug poisonings and overdoses are the number one cause of injury-related deaths. It doesn't seem likely that the panel's recommendation will be adopted, but for the first time ever, it's out there. Drug tests for every adult. Discuss. A new report in the New England Journal of Medicine concludes that so-called conversion therapy for members of the LGBTQ community should be outlawed in the U.S. So-called conversion clinics, a number of which still operate in this country, have used electroshock therapy, drugs, hormones, and surgery to try to doctor the gay out of their patients who are often forced by desperate parents to submit. The results, according to the panel of experts generating this report, are depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, and actual suicides. Only 18 states have banned conversion therapy, but only for people under 18. No states have banned it for adults. The doctors writing this report in the New England Journal want that to change. They also want medical schools to better prepare future doctors to care for LGBTQ patients, including how to spot signs of trauma caused by conversion therapy. After reports of groping and sexual abuse of women, the Philadelphia Orchestra and the San Francisco Opera have canceled the scheduled performances of opera star Placido Domingo. New York's Metropolitan Opera is waiting to hear first what the Los Angeles Opera has to say. Because Placido Domingo has not only performed at the L.A. Opera, he has been its artistic director for 16 years, a position of power in the opera world. Now at least nine women, singers and dancers, have come forward with what dozens of sources told the Associated Press is an open secret. Domingo's public response is vague, 
He calls the accusations, quote, deeply troubling and, as presented, inaccurate. If only there were some operatic way for Placido Domingo to know that it's over. NBC Universal has decided now is maybe not the best time to release even a satirical movie about people waging a shooting war on their political enemies. Or maybe it's decided there never was a good time to release such a movie, but now is not the right time, is what Universal said in its news release. In any event, Universal Pictures this week canceled its planned release of The Hunt with a cast that included Emma Roberts and Hilary Swank. Movie studios have pulled movies out of theaters before, relegating them to cable, but this is the first time in Hollywood history that a film was ready for release and was then canceled entirely. Disney tries to play it safe, and it pays. Its remake of The Lion King has become the highest-grossing animated film of all time, grossing nearly $1.5 billion worldwide, ahead of the previous record holder, Frozen, which had grossed just over a billion. But there are more hit sequels where those came from. Disney will be out with Frozen 2 just in time for the Thanksgiving weekend. This week, Hobbs and Shaw is the biggest ticket seller with more than $25 million in its opening week. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark is second with $21 million. The aforementioned Lion King hangs in at third with another $20 million. A Dora the Explorer movie is in fourth. And Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in the middle of the top ten at number five. For the rest of the movies and the tickets you'll need to get in, kindly click through the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. A 15-year-old San Francisco girl we only know as Dorothy was supposed to be paying attention to her cooking, but she wasn't, which is why a small fire started in the kitchen. That's why her mom took away her phone for two weeks, because of the fire. This was devastating to Dorothy, who, as Thank You Next on Twitter, chats with fellow fans of Ariana Grande. Dorothy has thousands of followers, something she feels she needs as much as oxygen, maybe more. Dorothy was desperate, fearful that she would lose her mutuals, the people who follow her and she follows back. That's when the avatar she uses on her Wii console suddenly popped up on Twitter. And that's when Dorothy's mom, who still had her phone, also took away the Wii console. Dorothy then turned to her handheld Nintendo, which has now also been confiscated. Dorothy's mom may be running out of options. Her daughter's latest text was sent from the family's smart refrigerator. What's black and white and turning up on porches throughout suburban Richmond, Virginia? 50 old-school television sets. Some are actually color TVs, but they're all of the type almost no one uses anymore, the low-def picture tube TVs that have been replaced by flat screens. What makes this TV on the porch prank a little bit creepy is that doorbell cameras have captured the delivery duo wearing old-school TV helmets on their heads, hiding their identities. Something like this also happened last year in Virginia's Henrico County, but Police say they're still unsure whether this is a crime. The county will now haul away the old sets for recycling, although a few of the recipients say they've decided to keep theirs. What's black and white and runs all over? Zebras on the loose in a town just outside San Antonio. 
the African beast escaped from a nearby ranch by swimming across the Guadalupe River into the town of Brownfells, Texas. One has since been safely captured, but the other is still on the loose using its stripes as camouflage after being chased through the streets by police cars. Nowhere are law enforcement officers trained for this situation, not even in Northern California, where a bear fell off a cliff and landed on a cop car. The Humboldt County Sheriff's Deputy Vehicle then hit an embankment, rolled onto its side, and burst into flames. The fire destroyed about a half acre of land before it was extinguished. Otherwise a good shift, Deputy? He got out, amazingly, with only minor injuries. We can presume the same for the bear, which, as we are told, went back into the woods to do there whatever they do there. In New York, a two-year-old French bulldog named Winston ran excitedly up the stairs of his owner's Manhattan apartment building, ran across the roof, and not realizing it was the edge of the world, bounded off of the roof from more than six stories up. Winston realized his mistake too late and could not stop in time. Quoting his owner, it was one of the most terrifying moments I've experienced. The three seconds between him going over and making impact felt like hours. Winston is fine. Owner Emma Heinrich ran downstairs and found Winston sitting in the driver's seat of a car next to the sunroof that had broken Winston's fall. The Heinrichs have offered to pay to have the sunroof repaired. Do bats eat spiders or do spiders eat bats? The headline I saw was misleading without proper punctuation. I read it, Texas woman records giant spider-eating bat. It meant to say, Texas woman records giant spider eating bat. Like the sentence, let's eat grandma, the headline needed a comma. Be that as it may, there was indeed video of a really big spider, black with gold highlights, eating a bat it had trapped in its web. An entomologist, a bug expert at North Carolina State, says this particular hard-to-pronounce spider usually just eats insects, but does feast on the occasional bat or bird. Speaking of really big spiders, it is tarantula mating season in southeastern Colorado where the big bugs are creeping their way across Highway 109 at dusk. When the sun sets this time of year, tarantulas are looking for love or at least a chance to procreate. Tarantulas are sometimes sold as pets, but catching them is illegal under wildlife regulations. Tarantula bites are usually no worse than a bee sting unless you're allergic. Most of these guys crossing the road are 10 years old and have just one chance to mate with the furry females who await them in their burrows in the grasslands near La Junta, Colorado. An entomologist at Colorado State University says of the male spiders who survive that journey, they'll be dead by Christmas. Karma for the bat thing, perhaps. The creatures of the earth have funny ways of getting revenge on humans even when all they're really trying to do is defend themselves. A woman in a fishing derby in Washington State caught a little octopus and posed with it for a picture. She held the mollusk close to her face and smiled as it used its powerful beak to attach itself to her chin and blast its venom into her flesh. She says the pain was tremendous and lasted for days, even after she'd stopped the profuse bleeding. At last check, she was on three different antibiotics, the docs say the swelling will be with her for months. As she told the TV later, 
crazy me, looking back, I probably made a big mistake. Don't count on better judgment in the future. The woman says despite the pain and despite the swelling, she did not seek medical attention for two days after the octopus bit her face. Says she wanted to finish the fishing derby. 49-year-old Arnold Teeter of Painesville, Ohio, is not allowed to brag anymore about the time he threw a two-foot-long iguana at a restaurant manager. Teeter's been bragging about it since April when he was at a Perkins and swung by its tail an iguana he'd found that had escaped from its owners. A judge has ordered Teeter not to brag about throwing the iguana at the restaurant manager anymore and not to live in any home with animals for the next five years now that Teeter has pleaded guilty to cruelty to animals and, of course, resisting arrest. The iguana suffered only a broken leg, which has now healed, and it has been returned to its rightful owners. The celebration had to be canceled. It was Friday night in Berlin. A 25-year-old man had just been released from prison. But he found himself behind bars again just hours later for allegedly stealing a few bottles of sparkling wine to celebrate his freedom. And finally, a Florida woman... I'll pause while you prepare yourself. A Florida woman who is mostly toothless successfully fended off a man who had forced his way into her apartment. She says she opened the door after she heard the fire alarm go off, and that's when the man pushed his way in. She says the man kept calling her mama and telling her everything would be okay. Or perhaps he was mumbling Elvis Presley's That's All Right Mama. Either way, mostly toothless Alice Coleman of Fort Lauderdale was having none of this, so quoting her, with the little teeth I got, I bit him. Thank you, home office. Alice ran out of her apartment, and as the intruder locked himself inside, she was at a neighbor's house calling the police. Police have identified the invader as Fitzroy Morton, identified him as the intruder by the single tooth mark that matches one of Alice's few teeth. Fitzroy Morton now faces three felony charges as he waits for his tooth wound to heal. Ms. Coleman says she will be more careful about opening her door in the future. From now on, she says she'll bring her taser. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.